0: Welcome, everyone, to episode six of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Billy Corbin, director of Cocaine Cowboys, the You Broke, Limelight, Dogfight, Magic City Hustle. It's uh, Screwball. 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 Sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Got to promote uh, the latest stuff, you know.
0: No, screwball is fantastic. That's one of my, that's one of my favorites. Uh, that's such a Miami story the idea that you have these upstart performance enhancement drug clinics going on in, in Miami. And you would think that the top athletes would find maybe uh, better, more sophisticated spots to get their performance enhancement drugs. I, I would picture like something more equivalent to the Lamps Armstrong style where you this have- This isn't a James Bond movie. This is Miami, <laughs> if you're crying out
1: loud. I mean, and, the, and that's exactly a character like Tony Bosch is exactly the guy that you'd find in miami to get your performance enhancing drugs from the kind of guy that deals with another guy who deals with another guy who bakes bootleg testosterone in his garage in West Kendall. So insane. You know, that's, that's exactly how that would, how that would go down. This is not, these not like sophisticated laboratories. They have all these weird compounding pharmacies that are kind of Russian mobbed up and they have, you know, storefront anti-aging clinics, uh, that, that, that peddle this stuff. And, and if, to be fair, Alex Rodriguez, really like a lot of us uh, down here in Miami are kind of guilty by geography because by virtue of, <laughs> of being here, you're in, I mean, my alma mater, University of Miami, uh, in, in the course of, of you know several years, uh before and after the great recession were directly associated with not one, not two, but three different ponzi schemers and that's just going to be the way of the world if you're you're dealing with a university that takes donations and 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 hustles with high net worth individuals that you're hitting up and and soliciting in Miami you're going to end up with a disproportionate number of those people who have obtained their means by ill-gotten methods and so that's why I say guilty by geography if you're the highest baseball player of all time and you're a Miami guy which Alex Rodriguez is it's sort of inevitable you're going to find yourselves uh, yourself within minimal degrees of separation from all these shady kind of characters it is a sunny sunny place for shady people after all
0: yeah you wonder watching that documentary how much how much the performance enhancement drugs even helped him I mean he's it's it's almost like a a random it, it was performance enhancement drugs delivered in a, a a random fashion almost. It's not very it's not super scientific the way they it didn't seem the way they were doing things. Well, Tony is not a scientist. Mm-hmm. He's not even a
1: real doctor. Uh, although he would take exception to that. He would say he's not a fake doctor, he is simply an unlicensed physician. He spends a lot of time Discussing that distinction without a difference uh, in the documentary. Uh, but he has his own methodology. He did get results for his clients. Um, there is something to be said, though, for the, the Yogi Berra saying, what, uh, half the game is 90% mental. And so you have highly superstitious people and professional athletes, mm-hmm. especially, you know, you hear the, the legends of them not changing their jock straps when they're on a winning streak and things like that. So they don't change anything, anything up. Um, and there is some question, we don't really get into it, but there is some question at various times when Tony Bosch was down on his luck, he was very candid about his addictions and uh, how much money he was making, but also spending. I think he said for every, every dollar I made, I spent two. So it's possible that at various times he may have been unable to even obtain the substances he was claiming to give his clients. Meaning, at what point were there, was there sugar water or sugar pills or placebos involved, which could have been just as effective. I mean, Alex Rodriguez, in his first game, uh, after he started on a Tony Bosch steroid protocol, he hit three home runs. Was that because of... The magical gummies that right. that Tony Bosch prescribed, sure. Or I'm doing I'm doing air quotes podcast people. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> that's not very helpful unless you're watching the video, but or was it because he felt as though he was back? You know, he 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 felt as though he had a psychological edge because he had the he had Manny R- Manny's guy Manny Ramirez's quote unquote doctor again air quotes air, uh, doc, air quote doctor, and uh, but Manny Ramirez clearly had some turnaround in his career, signed that ridiculous free agency deal with the the Dodgers within a year or two of working with, with Tony Bosch. And so there was definitely the perception that Dr. T, as he was known, was an advantage.
0: Now, I recall the book coming out, uh, Bloodsport, which led to a lot of the congressional investigations and sort of blew up. Blew up the story a bit, and and obviously Miami featured prominently in in that book. Yeah, the authors Tim
1: Elfrink and, and Gus Garcia Roberts were both former uh, Miami New Times uh, writers and and uh, editor and writer, uh, respectively. When did you first get the idea to to roll the story? Well, I mean, from the moment it, it broke, mm-hmm. um, I knew uh, Tim Elfrink at the Miami New Times when he he broke this cover story. He was the, uh, at the time, the, the Woodward and Bernstein of the Biogenesis steroid scandal, as it became known, and of course had ensnared about a dozen uh, top Major League Baseball players, including the highest paid player of all time, Alex Rodriguez. And so right away it was on our radar. We keep it at Rack and Tour, our company. We have a Google spreadsheet of dream projects that are mostly. Uh, Miami-centric, Florida fuckery kinds of tales, and so uh, that's kind of what we really built, I think, our brand uh, and our genre on, uh, of pop docs, as we call them, uh, a lot of Miami-centric uh, stuff, and so we had that immediately, I mean, the second it landed on the world's radar, it was on our radar, that maybe someday we would want to do this story, the thing of it is, is that when you're talking about a documentary now, like everything's like instant documentary, people are living documentaries now. But when you're doing a, a retrospective doc or a historical doc, because um, those are the two functions of, of documentaries to record or to recreate. So recording is like a reality show. It's contemporaneous. Um, it's called Verite Filmmaking. You're following an event around uh, contemporaneously with cameras and covering it, and then piecing it together. That's what Magic City Hustle is. That's what Dogfight is. Uh, that we've made. Um, to recreate means you're doing a historical doc, cowboys, something that happened years or decades before the you. Uh, screwball. In this case, these events happened years ago, and we're now getting the participants together and using archive footage and recreations to bring this era and this incident and 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 this uh, uh, this fuckery back to life. And so uh, that's what we did. That's what we did with um, with Screwball. And uh, I think um, there was a point I was getting to. This was all the exposition. <laughs> I got I got lost in in, in the morass of, of of exposition there. But I think. Uh, Um, we always wanted to do it. So the Mm. second it broke, so this is like early 2013, it's like, oh, this would be so cool. But these stories have to ripen. That's the point I wanted to make. The stories have to ripen. So, you know, and people hit me up all the time. Like, when are you going to do the big three? You got to do the big three, right? You got to do the Miami Heat story of like, you know, putting Bosch and LeBron together with D Wade at, at, which I think is a really, really compelling front office story, you know, I think I think that's that's the fun of that is it's not really a basketball story it's a sports business story and about you know and, and how that happened um, but you got to let it ripen yeah. you know, can LeBron retire for crying out loud I think I feel like you need like retirement plus ten years because you want a little distance you want a little perspective you want them to think about things reconsider things you want them to also feel comfortable to talk about things they may not be comfortable talking about this recently in history. You want you want that distance and that perspective. So um, it was obviously not something we were going to do imminently. It was something that was going to be on a back burner for a while, or or on our our spreadsheet for a while, until about October, Novemberish of 2013. So the story broke in about January of 2013. I get a an email from. Uh, a publicist, a guy I know through University of Miami kind of alumni circles, um, and he—he's a guy I, I know in real life, I've met in person, and and we're also Facebook buddies. And he hits me up, and he says, "This is uh, you know Alex at the time at that time was the last of the players who had been suspended by Bud Sealing, the Commissioner of Major League Baseball, who was still suspending uh, suspending. He was he was uh, appealing his suspension." Everybody else, Ryan Braun, everybody else kind of gave up at that point, took their lumps, and wanted to move on. Alex was fighting and spending millions, literally millions of dollars to fight this what was the longest suspension in the history of the game, short of a, a ban from the sport. And so he was fighting, I guess, thinking he had nothing to lose other than millions of dollars, mm. as it turns out. But he was also fighting for his legacy, because one way or another, he was towards the end of his career, Sure. Uh, He was a season or less, you know, or a couple seasons at the most away from retirement. Bud Selig was at the end of his career, and it turned into this kind of battle of the legacies. Bud Selig, who I think is and will forever be the steroid commissioner of baseball. I don't know that there's anyone who has profited more from steroids in baseball than Bud Selig has. Yeah, that, yeah. And so Selig was looking to, on his way out the door, say, I'm going to do something about steroids in baseball, And what could look better in the history books than taking, than getting the biggest scalp in the history of the game. And Alex was going, well, shit, I'm not going to be the fall guy for all this. I'm going to, you know, circle the wagons, pull my resources and channel them against you. So it was a pretty compelling, it wasn't even a David and Goliath. It was like a Goliath and Goliath kind of battle, which is pretty fun, you know, pretty exciting. And he was in arbitration in New York at MLB headquarters. And, his publicist writes me and says, Alex, we're on break from arbitration next week or whenever, and Alex would like to meet you. He has an office in, in Coral Gables, wow. Florida.
0: That's to his credit. He seems like kind of a cool guy at the end of the day. Who? A-Rod, like in Let's way. not get carried away. Okay, okay.
1: Uh, the publicist is a cool guy, okay. but <laughs> but that's a publicist's job is to be the cool mm-hmm, guy, mm-hmm. right for their for their for their weird clients, you know, like to humanize them, you know, give them a third dimension. But so, but I'm amazed that he agreed to. He didn't agree. Yeah. He reached out to us and right, said, got he, he, he said, "Alex would like to discuss the possibility of doing a tell-all documentary."
0: Oh, I see that so was he's the en, He's enlisting you in the war. Against yeah, he's in this it, PR. It, yeah, well, it. multiple
1: fronts they're fighting. They're, in, they're in, fighting in the arbitration uh, room. They're fighting in the court of public opinion. They're fighting anywhere and everywhere they can, they can get a battle going with, uh, with Major League Baseball. So we thought that we were going to his office in Coral Gables. We thought that this was going to be like a quiet, like private uh, intro. And so they, shortly ahead of the meeting uh, that was scheduled for noon on a weekday, He calls and says, or emails and says, we're going to meet at Hillstones on Miracle Mile and Ponce de Leon, the intersection. Which is, people shouldn't know this, but Coral Gables is a small municipality in Miami-Dade County that happens to house the University of Miami. But this is the most prominent intersection in the city of Coral Gables. And Hillstones is like the power lunch spot, (laughs) if there is a power lunch spot, in Coral Gables. And it is, so not only do you have the busiest and most prominent intersection in the city of Coral Gables, but you have a floor plan that is like all glass windows, open floor plan, everybody from the street to the back of house, to the back of the kitchen can see everything happening everywhere in the restaurant, from the bar to the kitchen to the dining room, everywhere. Great visibility. And we're walking in at high noon with three, four deep at the bar, a wait, you know, line of people at the at the host stand, hostess stand, and we walk up and say we're joining Mr. Rodriguez. And they guide Alfred Spellman, my producing partner and I, down the center aisle of this restaurant to the back middle booth on an elevated platform which all the booths are bordering the dining room along the wall where Alex Rodriguez is holding court needless to say all eyes in the dining room are on us and Coral Gables as I said being the home of the University of Miami a lot of UM fans it's like two miles this restaurant barely from the university and so in on ESPN, when we, they do the 30 for 30s, they really fetishize the directors. You know, they yell our names over and over again. Uh, they show us on camera doing bumpers and being interviewed about the documentaries every hour um, during, the, during the broadcast. And so if there's any place I'm going to get recognized, someone's going to go, oh, that's the guy who did the, you, you know, it's going to be there. Yeah. And so I realized on the walk, I was like, oh, shit. I was like, this is all just for the, the point is to be seen. Yeah. the documentary guys, sure. the Miami documentary guys being seen with, with A-Rod right at this moment sure, in the midst of the arbitration. So after intros, my icebreaker joke was, okay, who's going to call page six, you or us? <laughs> and what's funny about that is like a week later, it was in page six, Nice, which is cool. I don't have the juice to make that happen. Yeah. They spelled my name, right? Got the bold font and everything. <laughs> it was awesome. Um, but we realized quickly that this was all part of the, we were pawns. Everybody's a pawn in Alex's game, you know? So uh, we, we
0: are, we are all accessories in Alex Rodriguez's life. Let me put it to you. And then that uh, way. eventually everyone cooperated with you. Yeah. All of the key characters in the story cooperated with you. In January
1: of 2014, Alex, the, the arbitration was over. Alex got a slight reduction in his, susp- you know, the number of games he was suspended. It still remained, I believe the longest suspension in history. So millions of dollars to get a few, less games sit having to sit out a few less games but I think the following season he was injured anyway and then he came back for one more season etc but over the course of 2014 every month I would email the publicist again yo Alex interested in doing that that yeah. interview and that said, nothing I mean they, he would respond and we go back and forth but nothing ever came of it I did that for more than half the year in 2014 by the end of that cycle of emails Alfred spelled my producing partner says I got a call from a woman who is friend's with tony bosch i was like really because we knew tony bosch as the quote-unquote fake doctor who serviced alex rodriguez and these other athletes in the biogenesis steroid scandal he was sort of the you know he was the most prominent figure in the scandal outside of the celebrity baseball players who were involved she called and said tony would like to meet with us to discuss the possibility of doing a tell-all documentary it's like the same message that we got from Alex a year, almost a year earlier. And we met with him and he was in the, he was in the midst of his own, it wasn't arbitration. It was a federal criminal trial. Right. That he would eventually be sentenced to four years on. So that kind of, we went down the road and then that kind of got hampered, obviously by his federal prison sentence. And right around that, by the end of the year. So this is in just about a year's time, just over a year. I get an email from Tim L. Frank at the New Times who broke the story with the help of a whistleblower, Porter Fisher, who had taken these documents from Tony Bosch's office, copied them and gave them to Tim L. Frank. That became the basis of the expose and the whole scandal. And he said, Porter Fisher asked me for your number. Would like to discuss doing a document, maybe doing a documentary with you. And I was like, oh shit. I'm not a spiritual dude. I don't believe in you know in, in in signals or signs. I said to uh to my producing partners Alfred and Dave, I said, if ever the world or the universe was trying to tell us something, it's the three key figures in this international, you know, high-profile. Major League Baseball Steroids scandal all reached out independent of each other because needless to say, none of them are friends or talk to each other anymore. All reached out to us independently and said, let's talk about doing a documentary. I'm like, we have to make this documentary. So that's and then Tony had his sentence reduced and we and it all just, you know, it all just finally, finally happened uh, after he was released from prison.
0: And they were all incredibly cooperative in the documentary, in that they they <laughs> sort of own their incompetence in a way, <laughs> like they
1: own their incompetence. Such a in diplomatic their- way of saying they were like almost surreally candid, right? Yeah. Like bizarrely candid. Listen, I, I think that that's the uh, this was a this was a documentary short of a verite piece that we did pretty close or shortly after the actual events, so. They had perspective, but um, they, it was still, the wounds were still fresh. So what you had was is that enough years had gone by or enough time had passed that they were willing to come clean and be almost completely honest about it with themselves and with the world and with us. Yet it was close enough to where you could still hear and see the emotion and the passion and 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 see the 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 fresh fresh wounds being kind of repicked at. So it made for I think really compelling interviews, and as it turns out, hilarious, hilariously compelling uh, and candid interviews.
0: So let me ask you: uh, <clears throat> there was something very new you did in that film, which definitely worked, where you had. Uh, Maybe ten-year-old kids, twelve-year-old kids, eight, nine, and ten ish. Eight, yeah. eight, 9, and ten. Uh, you play tennis, don't you? Yes.
1: Uh, that was my Sean Connery.
0: <laughs> R- representing th- the versions of these main characters, and it's funny and also effective. It it, it definitely works, and I I wonder why it works. It seems like <laughs> it seems like it. It's, Not everybody thinks that, but thank it, you. It
1: uh, actually, a minority of people think it doesn't work, but. Most people, I think, dig it.
0: Oh, I thought it was incredible. And it, um, it's almost like the childhood version, it takes the ego out, out of it. The person's no longer ego protective. The child is just giving the message that comes across as the interview. So it, it, it works. Uh, why do you think that that works?
1: I think it works for a lot of reasons. It goes back to also the the inspiration for it like why did why did i come up with this ridiculous idea um which could have just as easily not worked uh it could have not worked because the idea was stupid it could have not worked because the execution was bad um i think i think we i think it it works and i think it it makes sense um and i think that it's funny most importantly there's a couple things so first when we set out to make a documentary, like I said, we call our genre pop docs because they tend to be, even when they cover socially conscious issues, they still tend to be a little more pop culture centric Mm -hmm. and in and of themselves, we hope to create a kind of pop culturally relevant piece of entertainment in and of itself. Uh, Regardless of the story, it's like, this is some, this is a, it's not just a documentary, it's a movie. And that's the wonderful thing about documentaries is that they're not a documentaries are not a genre style of filmmaking it's non fiction filmmaking when I say they're not a genre, I mean that you can make a documentary or a nonfiction film in any genre of film that you love yeah. you can make a sports movie, a musical, a romance a thriller sci-fi you mean you a war movie you name a genre of film that you a superhero movie you name a genre of film that you love and you can make a documentary about it and I can point to a documentary in any genre of film that is not only an outstanding example of that genre, but is one of the best films ever made in that genre, will will we'll be documentaries. And so we, when we set out to make a Cocaine Cowboys, for example, we wanted to make a gangster movie. We didn't say we're making a documentary. We said we're making a gangster movie. So how should that look? How should that feel? Who should we interview? What should the perspective be? Uh, when we set out to make Raw Deal, A Question of Consent, our first documentary, the inspiration was, was Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon. That's what we were trying to do. we weren't trying to make a documentary. We we're trying to make Rashomon. And that was a story that dovetailed nicely with that template. So the template isn't documentaries. The template is what is the genre of movie. Um, Dogfight was like an 80s action movie. Uh, the U was just a, an, an 80s sports movie. And that's what we wanted to make. Not a documentary, but what kind of movie... Are we trying? What genre of film are we trying to to make here? Uh, and then just steer into that curve aesthetically, uh, visually, orally. Just you know, what, what should this sound like? What should it look like? Um, and so uh, we knew that Screwball was going to be a comedy, probably our first doc comedy. I think there's a sense of humor in all of our docs, but this was going to be a, a comedy. We called it Screwball from the very beginning. That was the title. So we knew we were going to steer into that curve of this movie was going to have a uh, a sense of humor, if not a perspective, and or the perspective was going to be that this was a tale of Florida fuckery. This was going to be an Elmore Leonard, Carl Hyacin Coen Brothers-esque tale of Florida fuckery. You know, our log line was the highest paid baseball player in history, an over $400 million man. His career was ended by a $4,000 loan between a cocaine-addicted fake doctor and his fake tan-addicted steroid patient. <laughs> like, that was... So you're, so you're laughing, because it's fucking absurd, you know? So that was what... that We were going to steer into that curve. And so then we interviewed the people. We interviewed Tony Bosch and Porter Fisher, who are the... It's not about A-Rod. You know, A-Rod is a supporting character in the story. It's about these two guys. It's about this, you know... What's, what's the line from the dark night? This, this, uh, um, unstoppable force meets an immovable. What's the, what's like object. object? That's, that's Porter Fisher and Tony yeah, yeah, Bosch yeah. In, a, in a comedic nutshell. The, the less, anor, uh, you know, you know, anarchy version of the Joker and Batman, you know? Uh, and so we interviewed them and they're funny. Yeah. They're pretty funny. And one thing I, we knew early on was that because this is not about baseball, And it's not about baseball. How much baseball footage is in them. You make a sports documentary. It's a pretty, the template is pretty straightforward. Sure. It's talk to the sports people, get the sports footage, intercut the sports people with the sports footage. That's the, you know, that's the format. That's the template. Easier said than done, but that's, those are the basics. Sure. There was no baseball here. Other than those three home runs I mentioned to you that A-Rod hit, there's no footage, like it's not about a baseball game or, you know, any particular World Series or it, it there's no baseball footage. So what the hell other than the news footage, when the scandal broke, how do we tell this story? There's no footage. We're going to need to use some other doc tropes and devices, including reenactments or recreations. So we knew we were going to have to do something, shoot new shit that would depict these events that didn't happen on a baseball field. They happened in a hotel room, in a shady anti-aging clinic in a, Strip mall storefront in Florida, a 24-hour tanning salon, yeah. a bar, a nightclub. There's no footage of this shit, you know, so these events. So then I was listening to, and I, by the way, I don't like to make, I don't like to do reenactments or recreations. First of all, as a documentarian, you like to have found footage. You like to use, it's about keeping it real, right? So you like to use the real stuff, the real people. When you're shooting fake shit, you're like, is this a? Is this still a documentary, you know? Like I said, it's a well-established device of documentary filmmaking but it's also a pain in the ass
0: yeah (laughs) sure like
1: just logistically um you know i mean i'll give you an example we put together a a doc interview a doc shoot you know for one of our projects a big day for us we have eight people on set that's a that's a big day that's a big shoot sometimes we could do it with much you know half that or less on screwball during the reenactments we had a couple days during that 10 and a half day shoot where we fed a hundred people at lunch. Yeah. Yeah. So the, you, the scale of this thing was, was, was significant for us. It was more than 10 times our biggest day. And so long story, even longer, I was listening. We were doing what we call a radio cut of the doc, which is we're cutting. We're ju- we just have the interviews. We're not using any B roll or archive footage or news stories. We're just stringing together the interviews to, to see how we're going to craft this story and what bites go where. Is this clear? We're going to interview Tim Elfrink, the journalist, at the end. What blanks, narrative blanks, do we need him to help fill in so this will be coherent and the audience gets all the information that they need. So we're stringing basically just Tony Bosch and Porter Fisher together. And I noticed something in listening to them. I noticed this on set, but when you're starting to see it all together like this, it, it becomes much more obvious, they both, as much as they hate each other and are very different characters, uh, personality-wise, they tell stories in the same way. And because in these interviews, it's all they're just telling stories about shit that they did or that happened years earlier, they have to say, I was there in my office. And Porter Fisher walks in and says to me, where's my money? And I say, well, I don't have it right now. And he says, well, you, I want my money. And I say, I, and then you hear Porter. So I walk into Tony's office and I say, where's my money? And he says, I don't have your money. And I said, you better get my money. And I said, and then they, but they do it with, I'm doing it kind of bland, blandly. I'm doing it sort of modern, but they're like all into it. They like take you right back to that scene and are doing the dialogue of themselves and the other people they're talking to. And I was like, oh shit, we can... Drunk history this. In our reenactments, we can have the actors just lip syncing the dialogue right from the horse's mouth, right from the interview subjects, the original audio itself. I said, and then, all the actors are going to be eight years old. (laughs) And so, that was from a variety of sources. The first thing is, this is not a story I tell that often because it's a documentary that never got made. So about 10 years ago, uh i saw an off off-broadway musical in new york called a very merry unauthorized children's scientology pageant okay and my buddy dave sipkin our third partner at rack and tour he went to fsu because nobody's perfect and although to be fair they have one of the best film schools in the country where he attended and uh, he i remember he was doing a religious studies course and in it he was assigned to do a research paper on Scientology, which is a very Florida-centric story. They practically own the city of Clearwater, uh, Florida. And so I've been fascinated by it ever since, since college, and always wanted to do a doc on it. And 10 years ago, you could not do a doc on Scientology. Nobody would do it. They were notoriously litigious. They literally browbeat the IRS into getting not nonprofit status. So nobody wanted to fuck with them. And we are in a very different world now, obviously. But back then, and I was a real Scientology file, so to, so to speak. I was really interested in this story and in this world. And, of course, the Florida angle to it as well. So I went to, I approached one of the, the co-writers, a couple of Yalies, uh, because nobody's perfect. <laughs> Uh, who wrote this really brilliant musical. And what it is, is instead of a Christmas pageant where a group of elementary school kids do the story of Jesus, this was a Scientology pageant in which a group of elementary school kids perform the story of L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. And it's amazing. It's this great score, very Bowie-esque score, with all, all kids performing this. And I wanted to make a documentary about Scientology, a legit doc interviewing real people, going, you know, telling the story, but using the musical as a framing device because it's in, through the songs, they do tell the real story of L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology. It's done very straight-faced, this musical, with but with like the kind of cardboard sets, you know, to look like an elementary school play. Um, it was brilliant. And so I went and I pitched it around. Nobody wanted to make <laughs> that movie, which is a bummer because I feel like it would be a real cult classic yeah. uh, right now. And it wasn't, it would be a fucking decade before you know, HBO had the cojones to, to make a Scientology documentary. Sure. And then, of course, A&E did the Leah Remini series. And, you know, everything sort of sprouted from there. But, I, I mean, I was so bullish on it. So, I always wanted to kind of, I, I knew that you could, you know, the sense of humor of having kind of kids depict, you know, those, you know, in, in reenactments I thought would be a very funny shtick. Um, also, there was the Spike Jones video from 93, Biggie Sky's the Limit. Uh, was a major influence because he was doing a a posthumous video. Biggie had been murdered, and he needed to do a music video, and he was like, "Okay, well, I'm gonna do a iconic Bad Boy Records music video with the cars and the mansion and the girls and the hot tub, but they're all gonna be eight years old. Huh. So we had baby Biggie and baby Puffy and baby Busta Rhymes and baby like little Kim, I think is that, and they're just gonna lip sync the song straight." straight faced. So that was a, so there's all these things like in our head, you know, that we, that, that I thought were, you know, would, would be really effective. But then I realized also in this story, all the adults acted like children and it kind of stood to reason that um, this would, this would work.
0: And then it just became a, a question of the, how, how we would execute it. So you mentioned Scientology and the Florida connection where there, there's a weak Florida connection and, in all of your work except limelight there's a very strong florida connection which tells me i've always looked at your career and thought you must really really love miami because i think you're one of the most talented people in film like i think cocaine cowboys is top five documentary i think all of your documentaries are are amazing and and i think uh in a way, your love of Florida just makes you search out those Miami projects. When the world is open, you could you could do anything. So you you really love Miami and Florida. And <laughs> what was the lie? Someone, someone or it's it's a it's a complicated love. It's a complicated
1: but, relationship. Yeah, like most marriages. Uh someone wrote. I don't want to fuck this up. Someone wrote. It's a great lead. I did an interview with a journalist, and they wrote. This was the first line. It was something to the effect of. Uh, I'm going to refer my, for, refer to myself in the third person now, but I'm quoting. Uh, uh, Billy Corbin loves Miami. It's it is not, however, clear that he likes it, or something to that effect. Which I think was I thought was very funny um, when I read it. I was like, oh, and accurate, funny because it's true, you know. And um, so I I. I it's a complicated relationship. I was I'm a Florida native and a lifelong Miamian and I still live in the county of Dade, which I've lived in since I was 3 almost 3 years old. And so when you watch something like that change and grow First, you have a commitment, I think, as a Floridian to want to leave behind a better Florida than the one you were born into. I've pretty much given up on that ideal. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but I, I also, you know, what's the, uh, the... The Roastmaster General, Jeff Ross, says, we only roast the ones we love. And I think if you don't care, then you, you don't even bother to criticize. So uh, when you care, which I do, you, you want to put a spotlight on the flaws and you want to say, can we do this better? Um, I I'll offer solutions where I can, but I think first and foremost, you have to, what's the first step is acknowledging that there's a problem. That's yeah. step one in the 12. So like, that's, that's the problem is it's so many people here, you know, we, Florida is a story of lies that came true. And so everything here is a, is a hustle. It's a real estate scheme for usually first and foremost, it's a real estate scheme. And so, we're all about selling the dream. We have no indigenous industry here. As Carl Hyacin says, the only thing we produce in Florida is oranges and machine guns. So we sell the dream. Uh, there's a, a professor in, uh, from UCF, uh, USF, sorry, in Tampa, University of South Florida, Gary Mormino, an economics professor who has a theory called the Ponzi State Theory about the state of Florida. And uh, you can... Uh, yes people go oh yeah because it's a scam state all the ponzi schemers are here in fact charles ponzi himself it was the last state in the in the in the US that he actually plied his what would later become his namesake uh scheme the the ponzi scheme but this is a little bit deeper this is about uh florida being a state of growth and relying solely on that growth for everything and since the mid 1950s which was the invention of uh, central air conditioning and DDT to kill the Skeeters, because we are, after all, living in a fucking swamp here. Uh, Florida has had something like 1,000 new arrivals per day on average. Something psychotic <laughs> like that. And uh, the, and we, that happened until 2007, the year before the Great Recession. Uh, The Florida of today is the America of tomorrow. So if you want to know what challenges we'll face or calamities will befall us as a nation in the years to come, you need only look specifically at South Florida. So a year before the Great Recession, the writing was on the wall down here. Uh, Someone once said to me, like, ahead of the Great Recession, that in Miami, we were lighting the fires and Wall Street was trying to read our smoke signals Mm -hmm. to understand what was happening. And so in 2007, Florida experienced its first net population decrease. So fewer people came. And the economy essentially collapsed. And what Professor Mormino says is, that's a Ponzi scheme. It's not a legitimate, self-perpetuating economy. We don't produce anything other than development, growth, restaurants, hotels, hospitality, theme parks. All the shit designed to attract tomorrow's 1,000 newcomers not to sustain the current population and so if we don't have that continued investment if we don't have we don't introduce new investors to the scheme the whole fucking thing collapses and thus florida itself is a ponzi scheme and a ponzi state
0: yeah my my view though is that first of all in today's world there are many, many things that could be classified as Ponzi-like. Yes. And Florida, although it is unfortunately home to a lot of scammers and Ponzi schemes. I don't think it's unfortunate, I think it's by design, (laughs) but okay. Well, I think Florida is at this moment in time not so vulnerable because there are many Ponzi schemes going on in the world economy. And it's almost like all of the victors of all of those various random Ponzi schemes want to move to Miami. <laughs> and, and, so, and so all eyes are, like whatever, whatever hustles they've got going the, on in South, Am- Geography South Empire, America yes. or, or Eastern Europe or anywhere in the world, the victors, they all want to come to Miami. So it's, it's almost like uh, you'll have capital flight one year out of um say Venezuela. Yes. 10 years ago everyone from Venezuela moves. Yes. They always they always move like 3 years ahead of the crisis, right? They always no <laughs> they always lead it by a bit. Uh you can predict the next disaster by knowing who's moving to Florida. Yeah,
1: into your building,
0: literally, yeah. Uh so there's always the eyes of the rest of the world looking at Miami. And when people from Venezuela stop moving in, everyone's like, well, the Miami real estate market's going to collapse, but then they don't collapse because they're just replaced by people from Brazil and from France. Well, they don't
1: collapse until they do. It's always been a boom and bust cycle here. But, but that, but that's the point is that what is our indigenous industry in Florida? I'm, what do we produce? What do we I make? Think, here? As that you we say, sustain the economy. As you
0: say, it's like it's like lifestyle travel. We sell the, tourism, we sell the Florida dream. The Florida dream. We sell but the sunshine. That, that can probably continue it, and and just even until we run out of clean water, until
1: we run out of until the sea levels swallow sure, our sure. property, until uh, we we pollute uh, our our food supply uh, uh, irreversibly and irretrievably. This is not, we're a peninsula. There's a finite amount of land here. We have, manifest destiny has brought us deeper and deeper into the swamp, but we are going to destroy that, that ecosystem and destroy our natural resources to the point that this is going to, life is going to not be so sustainable here. We, of course, also have a third world economy uh, in in Miami, and and the the gap between the haves and the have-nots is growing first and faster here than almost any other city in the country. We're probably top three uh, for that, uh, but certainly we're we're top two for for income gap. And I think we're going to see. Uh, Happen, I mean, you're going to have to start seeing swamp cities here. You're going to start seeing. The equivalent of favelas Uh, and because the service industry, we have the Alice report from United Way earlier this year revealed 60 percent, nearly 60 percent of Miami-Dade County residents cannot afford to make ends meet in Miami-Dade County. So you're going to have Miami is the city of the future, as TD Allman said in the late 80s, you know, the Miami of today is the America of tomorrow. I mean, I think that that that's really this is an indicator. Uh, you know, as you said, whether it's flight capital coming here and, and being the, the canary in the coal mine for other, for South American dictatorships and which is going to collapse in, into crisis next, but also for the rest of uh, an indicator, I think, for the rest of, of the country where our challenges will, will, will come. Miami 1980, practically all the shit and all the culture wars we're seeing boil over now happened here in in Miami, in South Florida. So I I really think it is a a canary in the coal mine. I think it's really a bellwether for the rest of the country. And that's what makes it so interesting a subject for nonfiction treatment. It's also a place with a uh, transient population and a lack of historical memory. And our institutions like the Miami Herald don't do a sufficient job in reminding people, newcomers, uh, to the mistakes that we have made uh, in, in the past. Uh, politically and economically and and otherwise and and allow these these errors to compound and perpetuate i think you need only look at the at the skyline and quality of life in the downtown brickle area to see miami is one of the greatest modern tragedies in urban planning in the history of america and chicago already was there new york was already there boston was these are old cities that you kind of have to make the best of when it comes to new development and urban planning. I don't know that they have or not, but those cities already were there. Miami is one of the youngest cities in America, and it is America's perpetual, petulant, rebellious teenager, where they're not interested in history or preservation just new shit what's the coolest shit what's the latest gadget what's the latest update let me get the new iphone who needs the old iphone and that's how we we function here uh there's no money in history there's no money in preservation the money's in knocking shit down redesigning it and building something new and bigger um and and fresher and so i think you have an attitude here that um I mean, listen. They call it my fucking Amy. It's not our Amy or your amy It's mm. my fucking Amy. and I think that's the the attitude of a lot of a lot of people here. It's it's we we are in we are infected uh, by uh, 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 you know, warped priorities and perverse incentives, and so this is what we get. We we had an opportunity here. We had a blank slate here where we could have master planned and urban planned the shit out of downtown and Brickell. We could have built something truly functional and extraordinary, the city of the future. And instead, we have uh, corruption, dysfunction, and nonstop construction, and no quality of life, and no green spaces, and no public transit, and no infrastructure, and a sewer that is falling apart, and no, uh, and no uh, 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 emergency... Uh, medical uh, efficient emergency medical care or trauma center and no uh and no uh, and mired in in corruption political corruption and so that makes it ripe territory for storytellers and people looking to tell uh those types of stories because the essential ingredient in drama is conflict
0: so yeah so there is this plenty is, <laughs> this is this is ground zero uh, a little off subject. Did you happen to read the book? The water will come. It, it was, uh, really a fascinating book and they had a couple of chapters on Miami and they, they do visualizations of what Miami looks like. Looks like with yes. One f- foot of sea level rise, three feet, five feet. It's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and we'd be in the lobby right now yeah be well welcome. Key Biscayne is gone all the man-made islands are, are gone sure. Fisher Island has gone Star Island all of those islands uh, South well, it's a good it thing there's underwater. not expensive property there yeah um, Fisher Price uh, Fisher Price listen to me that was a
1: Freudian slip Fisher Island incidentally for for the listeners and viewers at home is the richest zip code in the country
0: so it feels like what happens in Miami with regard to environmental changes you'll you'll have punctuated damage in the form of hurricanes at some point which will wake everyone up to the sea level rise that has occurred because we know that there's a lot of water on the beach there the water table is very high it floods very easily and i think you live with that and you live with say over the next 25 years a rising water table and eventually it will lead to no construction on the beach because the water table will be too high um or like very limited construction on the beach. And then I think in terms of waking people up to the amount of damage, it will probably come with a hurricane, which is sort of a a random event, which will reveal the uh, amount of sea level rise and the vulnerability in one fell swoop. And then everyone's minds will change. Yeah. it's Well, that's, that's the thing about the,
1: lack of institutional memories that you know hurricane andrew happened and there are people who are traumatized uh, forever who are still here some people who moved away because they were so traumatized and you people don't remember how devastating the direct hit by by a cat 5 could be i think we're now more vulnerable we certainly have more i think we are uh, in terms of real estate value in the top 5 of vulnerable waterfront real estate in the world uh, in terms of value and so uh, I think I don't even think we need a direct hit if we have a a, a near hit sure. by a cat four god forbid a cat five um, it will be devastatingly catastrophic and it won't just expose the vulnerabilities but there's going to have to be a serious conversation in the insurance community about whether or not to abandon <laughs> abandon right. this market because you know uh, th- there is going to be considerable reinvestment needed to rebuild these homes that will only be vulnerable again to an as you said another random event or in the exposure of the vulnerability of sea level rise go oh well th- it's not only a catastrophic random event that we're looking to but it's this historic trend that is going to eventually swallow all of these up. So if we're going to rebuild a condo in Miami beach after a devastating hurricane, uh, perhaps we build the Marina on the 15th floor, you know, (laughs) you'll be looking up, you'll be like, what the hell is that up there? Is that (laughs) a dock?" It's like, oh yeah, that's the future Marina (laughs) site up there. You
0: know, Um, speaking of waterfront property, did you read the book (laughs) that came out last year about the uh, mutiny hotel? I did Robin Farzad's book. I wrote the uh, intro with Alfred. Oh, That was Hotel Scarface Hotel Scarface Um, that uh, I read like the first 70 pages on a plane and and I was I was thinking about the uh, the cocaine cowboy era because that am I am I right to think that the uh, the club that is that is frequently uh, appearing in cocaine cowboys was in the mutiny hotel.
1: Yeah, there's well, there's several clubs. That, I mean, okay. Actually, many of them were in Coconut Grove, where we are right now. Uh, Suzanne's Honey for the Bears nearby. Mutiny was the spot, though. The Mutiny was the spot that Oliver Stone visited when he was researching uh, the screenplay for Scarface uh, at, that Brian De Palma directed. And it became the basis for the Babylon Club. Mutiny, Babylon, same number of mm-hmm. syllables. The Babylon Club in Scarface was inspired by the Mutiny Hotel. Uh, the club at the Mutiny Hotel, which was on, I believe, the second floor uh, at the time. Uh, so the Mutiny Hotel comes up. You see a. In fact, I have in my. I, I was looking in my pockets. Uh, I have a original Mutiny room key and keychain, nice. which is that the, the Mutiny logo is this amazing, kind of line drawing of a pirate uh, with the eye patch and the um, and the you know the scarf on his on his head, and that logo appears and pretty prominently in in Cocaine Cowboys, and that was that was the. Club of Clubs in Miami at the time. There's a lot of fun shit. There was the Jockey Club, the Cricket Club, uh, Turnberry a little bit later, um, and uh, like some of those other nightclubs. But the Mutiny was was considered the, the the jewel in the crown of, particularly in the drug world.
0: Now the the Cocaine Cowboys story. Did you feel like you grew up and knew all of the? the the basic story and background or did you have to do a lot of research when you decided to do it so I, it seems like knowing you How old do you think I am? Well <laughs> Well, but it seems like you know Miami so well that maybe all of the stories were a little bit second nature you kind of knew knew some of the, No, you had to do the deep research Well, we, I guess
1: yeah, I guess you could you could you could say that we had done the research our whole lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alfred Spellman my producing partner was a particular student of the era and when i say the era i mean the drug trade of of that era and at the time that we were preparing for it a lot of the books well most of the books there, there was a finite number of books written about miami and the cocaine era and the cocaine boom and most of them were out of print if not all of them were out of print by the time we were we were researching for cocaine cowboys which at the time was called city made of snow by the way, that was the our temporary working title was City Made of Snow. And what I remember, because I was born in 1978 in Fort Myers, Florida, speaking of real estate schemes mm-hmm. that's what, and lies that came true, uh, we moved down here to the North Miami Beach area. a The only city in America, I think, with beach in the name that has no beach, <laughs> speaking of land scams. And uh, we, uh, I grew up in a say a a working class jewish community and uh what i remember most distinctly about the 1980s in miami was everybody seemed to be doing very well economically um even in this working class neighborhood everybody had a toy you know a portion the driveway least though it may be building a a new pool, a second story to the house. It was, everybody seemed to have a little extra, or enough extra cash kicking around that they could get a little something special. Nobody was really struggling. And also none of these people, looking back, were in the drug trade. But this was, they were all jewelers, car dealers, in real estate, grocers, they sold wine, they so you know, whatever they did. They were lawyers, lawyers. this was the only successful real-world example of Ronald Reagan's trickle-down economics. Mm-hmm. This was a case where we had a—I mean, tourism was like a our number one industry was tourism, which was a pro, about a ten to twelve billion-dollar a year industry, and the drug trade was about a ten to twelve billion-dollar a year industry, all cash off the books. So imagine your biggest or tied for your biggest or at worst, your second biggest local industry is an illicit all cash trade. And this was not a case where, as as an attorney described it to me in his Cocaine Cowboys interview, a case where you rob a bank and you ride on into the next town and spend your ill-gotten gains. They made the money here, they spent the money here, and it trickled down into literally every facet of this community to every industry to every every legit person and a legitimate person and into ultimately infrastructure and investment in real estate and and ultimately the the skyline and if you think about it one of the smugglers that we interviewed uh, explained said he'd have buddies who were blue-collar workers so they were making maybe fifteen thousand dollars a year back in that time, late 70s early 80s, maybe $15,000 a year. They'd be like, "Hey, hey man, give me a shot. Let me come out one night and unload a, a shipment for you." Literally manual labor. Let me fucking carry bales or whatever and pass it, you know, to the net or throw it into the truck or whatever. Great. That guy, bottom of the totem pole in the drug trafficking trade. Literally manual labor. Got $5,000 cash for the night. That guy was really bored one night a month. He could do that one night a month. So you do yeah. the math. This guy's making $15,000 a year taxable on the books right. and $5,000 a month cash off. So what's that guy going to do with it? He's going to buy shit in Miami is what he yeah. did. And so you have a, you know, you had people like that all over town. Yeah. And then of course the banks who are Charging a vig for depositing cash because it became a liability because they had no fucking place to put it. it. It was in Scarface. I mean, that's you know, Oliver Stone did his homework. You know, for as much as people say, oh, this is this sort of absurd, absurdist operatic, overblown version of Miami. The research on Scarface is impeccable. They pack a lot into that two and a half hours. It is it is quite nearly a documentary. Scarface is. Except I don't think Al Pacino's Cuban.
0: (laughs) Now, uh, I take it that Cocaine Cowboys was an outstanding commercial success because it's had it's had quite a life. Like it's still a very popular like people are still watching it a Uh, lot.
1: Cocaine Cowboys is what I would describe as a cult classic, which is defined as a movie that everybody has seen that has made no money. (laughs) that's crazy it's not no that's not entirely true um i I will let, let me tell you what i i describe a successful filmmaker uh it's not box office it's not reviews it's not awards a successful filmmaker is one that gets to work again and in that regard it has been phenomenally successful yeah and i think it would be foolish for me to say, it has not been successful, and we're literally on our fourth Cocaine Cowboys title in the franchise. We were able to make the U at ESPN, thanks in no small part, in fact, possibly entirely, on Cocaine Cowboys, and much of our career has certainly, I could certainly credit uh, to Cocaine Cowboys. So in that regard, it's been a phenomenal success, of course, and great title, too. It
0: must have been a relief to go from Starting your own film company, doing the money raise, uh, budgeting all of that, to then going to ESPN with the deep pockets. At the time, the deep pockets. Let's not get carried away. It's still Disney, <laughs> still Disney. They're very conservative. Oh, I, thought, I, th- I thought they were spenders back in that. No, uh, that no, they were time. very
1: conservative. I'm not complaining about the budget, but I mean, it was still very conservative. Uh, and they and they had a lot of footage, so which is good, so you don't have to spend the licensing money. But the budgets were the budgets were. In the early days of of the thirty for thirty series, which we were there before thirty for thirty existed, uh, with ESPN Films, um, they were they were always always a conservative uh, and frugal frugal company. So they kept the
0: title thirty for thirty, but there there might be at this 100. point a hundred. Oh, yeah. yeah, and I I would gather that the U, uh, Part One and Part Two and Broke are well, they're certainly all in the top twenty. And probably the U and Broke are in the top ten most watched. Right? I, I would half of imagine remember, you know uh, Connor Shell, the VP over there,
1: and he was one of the he was the first guy that we talked to when we cold called ESPN Films to pitch the U called Hurricane Season at the time. And Connor said in a in a in an interview, kind of looking back, you know, retrospective oral history, so to speak, on on thirty for thirty series, he said the the. The thing, the great thing about the U is that it was not two hours of content; it was a thousand hours of content because people watch it. Oh, we air it over and over again across all the the networks. Yeah, and people watch it over and over and over
0: again. And but so, it's so good; like non sports fans love it, and non Miami people not. That's not the best compliment. Football.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's the best compliment we get on it. Is people who say either I'm not a college sports fan or I, uh, or I hated Miami back in the eighties or whatever, who say like I watched it and I loved it and I got a new a- appreciation of respect for Miami. I'll tell you a funny story. We were doing a project called a sunny place for shady people. I was a pilot, a doc pilot, and, um, I needed a Colombian drug money launderer to do an interview. And we were going to, my pitch to him was that we were going to keep him anonymous. We were going to silhouette him and manipulate, you know, do the robot voice so that he would be unrecognizable. Um, and so a mutual friend put us in touch. He was going to call me from an unknown number I needed to know to pick it up, you know, at a certain hour. And so, or a certain range of hours, I should say. And so um, he calls, and I, this, my lead is, you know, my name is Billy Corbin. Uh, I directed Cocaine Cowboys, nothing. No, there might have been a hmm, a grunt or something, a noise on the other end of the phone. It could have just been some digital static. I don't know. Nothing though, and so I keep going, and we want to do this interview. And he's, I don't think I'm winning him over. Um, it's not going poorly. It's not going well though. Um, and or it's not going as good as as I hoped it would. And this guy's got to trust me. We got to fly him into the country. We have to protect him. We have to put him up. We have to. He has to trust that I'm not going to reveal his identity. And so I don't know that I'm generating a lot of goodwill or faith or trust. And several minutes into the conversation, there's a lull and he goes, What did you say your name was again? I said, Billy Corbin. He said, Did you direct the you? I said, Yeah. He goes, I love that documentary. <laughs> and I started laughing and I was like, you have like a college foot like an American college football you know, college American football movie down in Columbia. Oh, guy goes, I love the Dallas Cowboys and Michael Irvin, and and um, this guy born and raised in Columbia. And I was like, dude, I gotta, I gotta make a confession. I totally profiled you.
0: <laughs> like I totally
1: led with, Co- I buried the lead apparently because I, I I profiled you. I'm like, well, I'm talking to a Colombian drug <laughs> money launderer he, said, he goes, Oh yeah. I, t- he goes, Oh yeah. I, I saw cocaine. He goes, everybody's seen cocaine, Cowboys. but I love the U, that's you. Know? Great. So I was like, ah oh, shit, that's hilarious. Like the, you was the great sort of the great equalizer. That was the, that was the
0: common ground that I needed to close the deal. That's amazing. <laughs> in the, in the poker world, uh, everyone has seen and loved broke because, oh. Poker players often follow that uh, professional sports trajectory. of
1: It's a sudden wealth event. <laughs> it's a sudden. That's that's the thing is that it's not just professional athletes. It's sudden wealth events. I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, lottery winners, mm-hmm. athletes, uh, uh, inherited wealth doesn't usually last much beyond the generation that generated it. You know, sure. I mean like it doesn't last much beyond the second generation. So, uh, you know, you you. This is not an uncommon phenomenon. and this is what happens with athletes is that they tend to come from modest backgrounds and means. They have parents who don't have experience in handling, preserving or growing wealth, and suddenly experience a sudden wealth event and, and invariably make all the mistakes that a young person with a lot of money would make, regardless of what profession. Uh, you would be in and I think that's the that's the, the most important thing to realize and that, uh, Broke is the least favorite documentary of mine that I've ever made and I say this being a man who directed Cocaine Cowboys 2 Hustlin' with the Godmother and Broke is my because Broke turned out the furthest away from my original intent and vision um, but I think it's still a good piece and I think it's still an important piece because I think to this day 130 for 30s later it may be the only one that was a call to action you know, that wasn't like, oh, let me tell you a story about some sports shit that happened 30 years ago or 10 years ago. It was something like, oh, this is an epidemic that is ongoing that tomorrow we could do something about or that athletes could change, alter their behavior based on this and maybe rightfully uh, uh, be able to preserve some of this wealth that they're generating for themselves and their families and future generations of their families. And so uh, I think it's an important piece in that, uh, in that regard. I think it was like a scared straight Kind of a thing, you know, and, and that was the most heartening thing about it was to see professional athletes like LeBron, like uh, uh, uh who else? uh, Magic Johnson you had pretty big people tweeting going, everybody turn on ESPN right now. More heartening than that were the college athletes that night that it premiered tweeting, I'm not going to be in broke too. You know, <laughs> that maybe that maybe. Smart was the new stupid. Yeah. That the idea that maybe it's less cool to be so ostentatious and you know, to partake in conspicuous consumption, a little cooler to say like, well, I'm gonna drive a shit car and not wear a $5,000 suit and put my kid through college yeah. with the money I'm making now. But the, when you think about it, when the American dream was still a thing and industry was still a thing and, and, and uh, 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 retirement funds were still a thing, the typical trajectory was you graduate college, you start to go, you go into an industry. Maybe it's switch jobs or switch businesses, but at some point you're at an entry level in a company or in a job or in an industry and you slowly work your way up. And as you work your way up, Hopefully, you get wage you know wage increases. Or you get raises. Um, you become more prominent, more successful, better at it. You get promotions. You're making more money along the way. Maybe you buy a house. Maybe you lose a house. You make some good investments. You make some bad investments. You get married. Maybe you get divorced. You've got alimony. You got ch- but you're kind of learning as you as you go through life and making mistakes and um, gaining financial literacy and gaining income. Hopefully, at the same time. And then you're at the peak of your of your earning prow- prowess and at the top of your trade in your 50s and, and you retire and you have the most money that you'll have you know, in retirement and at the end, you're ma- hopefully, if you're successful in your business, you're making more money in the last year that you're with the company than you did in your first year in the company. With professional athletes, it's totally upside down. They're making the most money they're ever going to be able to generate in their lives in their 20s. And if any of us were making the most money we were ever going to have the ability to generate salary wise or, you know, revenue wise in our 20s, we would come up with all kinds of creative ways to fuck that up. Yeah, I think, you know, because <laughs> you're just in that mentality of like, oh, this is going to go forever, you know, like I'm going to keep doing this and this is gonna, so I can just, you know, buy the big house. And and then you're just you find yourself. You're like, oh, I see. And even though the, the, it's I call it like superhero syndrome, these guys, they feel it in their bones and their brains and their bodies. They see teammates and friends lose it in an instant, especially in the NFL, the longest average career, 3.3 years, the highest the lowest average salaries, not guaranteed, no less. And the highest rate of career ending injuries. And yet these guys think like, I'm going to do, I'm going to be the guy that's in the league for 20 years. It's not Reasonable, it's not physically possible. But you remember what it was like in your twenties. You're fucking invincible. You know. So how are you going to convince a twenty year old who that you know who's who's been told their entire life how brilliant they are, how amazing they are, how incredible they are? They have not. I I I I I also have this theory that I have addiction in my family, and so um I have a theory that uh they have a theory in addiction that says that um you are emotionally your emotional development is stunted. At the age you start using your drug of choice, so no matter how old you grow, no matter how much wisdom you should theoretically gain from life experience, you're emotionally that eleven-year-old who grabbed the pills from mom's cabinet or stole a drink from the from you know the wet bar. Um, and I find that true of celebrity too. You know, like Justin Bieber will always be an eight-year emotionally always be you know that yeah. eight-year-old well, brilliant I had a
0: kid. Scary conversation with the uh a poker friend of mine from back in the day uh his name was alan melter he founded lined up records and he also had a big business success in uh cd now which was an early online cd resale retailer i remember it um, i was a customer yeah that it was it was a sh- sort of a short-lived thing but they made a lot of well, I bought a lot of CDs back yeah, in the day. <laughs> they sold a lot of CDs and 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 the stock price got very high during the dot com era. Um but Alan uh discovered Evanescence. Her her first flight was to see him in New York and he signed her and uh Creed and Seether and a lot of other bands and he uh <clears throat> So we have him to blame for Creed is what you're saying. Is that where this is going? Well, his experience with Creed. So Creed, Creed, they sold a lot of albums. They sold, I think, possibly 10 million albums. They certainly sold millions of albums. Um, And they were at the tail end of when people bought albums. Um, And Alan had been in music for a very long time. And he kept seeing people die or destroy themselves with addiction. And people that, from the outside looking in, shouldn't do that. Um, and so he really, he was a thinking person. He really struggled with why. And the theory that he latched on to, I can't say that, I'm going to be able to do it full justice but it it's a, a theory of acquired situational narcissism um and it's a I believe it was a Princeton psychologist that that came up with this theory and acquired situational narcissism basically has it that fame is the most powerful drug there is and and that when you're told repeatedly by millions of fans that you're the man, you're the man. And you're getting that constant applause. And there uh, there's a part of you that just needs it. And that's fine until it's gone. Oh yeah. yeah. I call
1: that spotlight syndrome. (laughs) When the light goes off and you're like, who the fuck am I? Where the
0: fuck am I? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it maybe has its challenges when you're on tour and you have millions uh, clamoring for you. You have the logistics and there's too much attention and schedule. You're busy. It maybe has its challenges, but according to Alan's telling, that's not the problem with acquired situational narcissism. It's when that's gone. I love acquired situational narcissism. Uh, I love that. I, I I
1: reduced it in in the most simplest, in the, the most simplistic terms. It's when you stop hearing no no defines all of us obstacles and challenges limitations breed creativity overcoming obstacles understanding what legitimate boundaries are for other people and for you know and no defined hearing no defines us it makes us the people that we are um, how we accept it how we deal with rejection how we overcome it if it's something to be overcome uh, it's it 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 helps develop us into the people that we are. And when you stop hearing no at 8 years old, when you become famous at 8 years old, you start using drugs and you just feel like oh the world is just my oyster. Everybody just tells you yes, everybody just tells you yes, how brilliant you are, how great you are, and you stop hearing no. It fucks you up. Is what it's it, the drug is fame and, and you just and and the second you hear no, you just hit a you hit a wall. But, but how can you ever develop emotionally if you don't, if there's no boundaries, if there's no obstacles, if, if nobody ever tells you, you can't have that. You can't do that. How do you know what, how do you know what society expects of you as a, as a person, as a human being, if, if you don't know that? And so I just think that's what it, it just, you, when you stop hearing no. You' just
0: screw- You're just screwed up. For, for, no, for life. I, I agree 100 percent, and I think, I think people have a way of not realizing or not recognizing when they've accidentally come upon an environment where everyone around them is paid to be around them. I think people have a way of, hmm. like just forgetting that. Like they they're going in a circle and they just they just don't think about the idea that hey everyone I'm interacting with is paid to interact with me. What a terrible thing you imagine not having
1: or not knowing who your friends <laughs> who yeah. your friends are. And in the case of in broke, you realize that I, I asked uh, Leon Searcy this question. Uh, Miami Hurricanes great uh, later played in the NFL. He was playing the Jacksonville Jaguars uh, at the time. This story. He said I asked him. I said. How did money change you? Or how did you change when you got money? And he said, "Ah, you know, that's hard for me. You know, it's hard to see the forest for the trees. Like, you'd have to ask other people to be fair how I changed when I got money. You know, he's like, I was me. He's like, I don't really, you know, I don't think it'd be fair for me to answer that. I said, "What well, I can tell you is that everybody around me changed. when I?
0: Got
1: <laughs> you know, he's like, Dad, I can tell you how they treated me. How they, I mean, he would go and pick up his paycheck from the front office at the stadium in Jacksonville, and he would come out to the player parking lot, and his family would be standing around his car. They knew when payday was, and they would be literally waiting outside with their hands out. And so he's like, I know, he's like, he's like, I'm sure I changed. I'm not saying I didn't. He's like, but you just have to ask other people to get that perspective. He's like, but I can tell you that everybody else changed around me. And when your family starts to target you or see you as a a meal ticket or whatever, I mean, that's a bummer. I mean, you can't even, you feel like you can't even trust blood. That sucks. Yeah.
0: Did uh, the guys who together ballers did they contact you as a consultant or do you have, do do <laughs> have it?
1: well they didn't pay me <laughs> to be a consultant but but uh but certainly uh i heard from uh, uh from steve levinson and and uh the the ep and uh i i think that um uh trying to remember who uh, uh, pete berg i think also ep'd and and directed of the pilot and a bunch of episodes. But we were on the set of the show at one point. And they're like, oh, you know that, like, this was totally inspired by
0: Broke. We're like, yeah, I know. I just, the
1: check the check must have got lost <laughs> in the
0: mail, I guess. That's great. That's great. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about one of my favorite works that I, I gather is also one of your favorites, uh Limelight. Mm. And that was not the, one of the, least Miami works you've ever done. There is a, there is a connection. Okay. Uh, the first
1: limelight, the first nightclub called Limelight that Peter Gation, the subject of the documentary opened was in Hollywood, Florida. Right at about US 1 and I think Pembroke was this, was the cross street. Yeah, they, they, that was the first Limelight. And it was pretty cool. It had like a it had a glass dance floor with a shark tank underneath it. And that was the first club he called Limelight. His, I actually, I think it was his first nightclub in general. It was this. He had a bar in uh, in Canada, but then he, his first nightclub in the U.S. was what well, he named Limelight uh, in Hollywood, Florida, or Hallandale, Florida. So you know, somewhere right there. And then went
0: went to New York. He's one of the most complex characters uh, that I can remember in in your documentaries because you do, you don't have a clear read as a viewer mm. at the end. He has... Ever. A clear read, yeah. Yeah, he comes across as a a very likable guy, and the story is uh, pretty outrageous, but there was also a good bit of corruption in there, and, you you know... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's part of the reason
1: why the movie didn't connect, is that he's a pretty quirky guy. Comes off a little bit cold. Nice guy, but he... Little, you know, wears the sunglasses and seems a little aloof. Well, he's a little hard, I'm sure. Yeah, and emotionally, well, he also has one eye. That's why mm-hmm. he wore the eye patch. Um, but emotionally, he, he's not a warm character on screen. And I think that maybe is why the, the doc didn't connect as much. But I saw it, for me, the dynamic, I saw very casino-esque. Because, you know, uh, it, uh, Sam Ace Rothstein, who was Frank Lefty Rosenthal in real life, uh, in, in the movie Casino, was a weird dude, quirky dude, not a warm guy, not a like, you know, particularly likable character per se, but a compelling and interesting guy. And if you think about it, like in Casino, Robert De Niro, his character doesn't really make things happen. It's all the crazy people around him, you know, mm-hmm. his er- erratic you know, uh, uh, wife struggling with addiction and, you know, the Joe Pesci character. And like, he's a guy just trying to like run a business, yeah. And everybody, and, there, and balance all the craziness around him. Um, and that was kind of Peter in a way. You know, Peter was the straight man in his own story. And he had all of these eccentric and insane, and in some cases criminal characters around him. And he was trying to balance all of that along with managing his own addiction and his own issues. So, So he was, in that way, he was like the... The least dynamic character in the story, uh, which I think, from a storytelling perspective and a filmmaking standpoint, it, it become it becomes challenging. But I was interested in all of these forces around, you know, Rudy Giuliani was like the Nevada Gaming Commission. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like the yokels, you know, and then the um, and then, you know, we got the sort of the he, he, he had this interesting wife character, not quite a femme fatale, but in, like Sharon Stone, she had her own thing going on, which was in an early cut of the movie that didn't make the final cut. Um, then there was, you know, the Joe Pesci of that world may have been Lord Michael Caruso or even or even Michael Alley. You know, there was like all these. And here was just this dude who was like. Pretty lame, you know. The small town Canadian uh, kid who who built the large to this day, I think the largest nightclub empire in the history of New York. At the peak of his empire, he had the four largest clubs ever. He had Limelight, Palladium, Tunnel, and Club USA. The smallest of those clubs was, was Club USA. The capacity was like twelve hundred people. So that was his smallest club. The biggest, I think, was tunnel, which held about 5,000 people on any given night. So this was an extraordinary operation that he built from nothing, literally from from a blue jean store in a suburb of Canada, born to a
0: post office, you know, mail delivery man. And the complexities of the story come from the fact that at that time, alcohol wasn't fully the drug of choice and they hadn't, they hadn't really uh, perfected the idea of bottle service and uh, $1,000 tabs. It's, and- ki-
1: it's kind of, it's a part of like our, almost like our, our uh, decade trilogy of drug trend documentaries. You know, we have Square Grouper, The Godfathers of Ganja in the 70s, our, our documentary. Then we have Cocaine Cowboys in the 80s. And then in the 90s, we have our sort of ecstasy you know, our are synthetic and and uh, uh, drug trends seem to be cyclical, and by the '90s, a lot of like psychedelics, a lot of '60s drugs seem to be coming back, and then variations, contemporary variations on that, which in this case were the synthetics, the MDMA, the ecstasy, then people messing with ketamine and and stuff like that. Um, so it it definitely is is our sort of '90s ecstasy. Documentary. But I will say this is that, and the reason why we were approached to do it is that it was very much, other than that minor Florida, you know, South Florida connection that I mentioned, it was very much our kind of story uh, in that it, it, it was a kind of twisted take on the American dream or the American dream by any means necessary, which I think a lot of great stories that resonate are and a lot of our documentaries are these sort of Horatio Alger stories, these rise and fall stories that tend to be very compelling inspiring sometimes cautionary tales and um, also set against the backdrop of a city transforming in a particular era like Cocaine cowboys you know Cocaine cowboys I always I call it a mosaic you know we have all these tiles we have a smuggler we have a enforcer we have a wholesaler we have a journalist we have a a cop and a lawyer and as you zoom out, the mosaic, the bigger, is the skyline of Miami, who is the biggest character and has the most significant arc looming over the entire story. And with Limelight, it was very similar. It was, it was this nightclub empire against the backdrop of the Giuliani revolution that was transforming Manhattan from the sort of 42nd Street porn theater, you know, uh, striptease, you know, uh, a kind of world into... Disney forty seconds to read is Disney World practically today. So that was that transformation was was occurring while Peter was running these dens of ill repute, you know, and 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 that then changed the nightclub. Nobody wanted to run those big clubs anymore because the city and even the feds were holding the owners responsible for what the customers were doing once they got inside. That never happened at Madison Square Garden. That doesn't happen at a Starbucks. Someone comes and sells drugs in your men's room at Starbucks. They don't arrest the owner. Yeah. If they don't if they had nothing to do with it, if they weren't in on it. Sure. You can't. And here's a guy running any given night he's got a hundred thousand people coming in and out of his clubs between employees and and customers and and how is he supposed to be responsible for a kid in the corner selling ecstasy pills for twenty dollars a pop and what does he care about that he's making money at the door he's making money at the bar uh it, it never it never really made sense that he was involved in some sort of intricate conspiracy and he was in fact acquitted of it uh, at trial spoiler alert sorry mm-hmm. but um which is a major part of our of our story um but uh this um the idea that you could be held responsible for something that five thousand random people in your club, who paid to get in there any given night, are doing, transformed the New York club. Everything became lounges. Remember, everything. Yeah. Became, nobody wanted to have to deal with a thousand people. They're like, okay, we're gonna do we're the ultra lounge, and it went and oh, also went to bottle service. So it wasn't about it wasn't about the quantity of dr- single individual drinks you could sell. It was the quality of people and. The, the, the revenue you could generate off of bottles at a single table rather than turning over random customers with cover charges and, and individual drinks. It really, tra- it really changed the city. And so that was very similar again to, to, to Cocaine Cowboys. It was, the, it was the end of an era documentary. So how did,
0: how did Dogfight come about? Similar
1: to a Screwball, it was inspired by a New Times cover story, a Miami New Times story. Uh, by Frank Alvarado and Colby Katz, uh, who was the photographer, uh, who did beautiful work on that story of uh, Dada Five Thousand Dafir Harris, who was the Don King of the bear, unsanctioned, illegal bare knuckle brawls of, uh, Pine West Pine, which is a, a suburb, a mostly African American suburb of uh, of Miami Dade County, and um, it, it it had been on everyone's radar, I think, since Kimbo Slice, but that was sort of a random thing you know you you know icy mike or kimbo would hit you up and be like come to this backyard and a few few people would be there you could see from the background of those youtube videos that it wasn't like a big ring or a big thing it was a impromptu kind of viral scene um and dada organized the backyards and started to hold events in his mom's in his mom's yard right there in Perrine. and it became like these like block parties these, <laughs> these unsanctioned local uh events where people were selling food and and paying to get in and getting VIP folding chairs by the right by the ring. I mean, he and his brothers planted a 12 by 12 ring and and turned it into not really a cottage industry for himself because he never took any money. He always used the covers uh, as uh, purses for the fighters. Never took any money. That's um, it, that's crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. His mom's his mom thought so too. <laughs> it was he wasn't getting any kind of uh, any kind of vague uh, uh, or any kind of uh, uh, you know GNA or any sort of uh, recruitment or anything. Um, but he got a lot of people to volunteer stuff, and he you know he tried not to to pay for too much stuff. I to have, have too many out of pocket expenses. But yeah, never made any money uh, doing it.
0: In preparation for dogfight, did you? Did you go to any events without a camera and just observe it as an audience member? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We went to I I we
1: went to and some of I mean, they weren't as big as some of the ones that happened on camera. Mm-hmm. Uh but but we I we I went to, I spent a lot of time in uh in, in West Parade and uh people were always like, oh, it's very dangerous. It's not that dangerous. It's it's a pretty it's a it's a it's a neighborhood, like it's just a real neighborhood. Uh, and people know each other, and people are sitting outside on their lawns, and you know it, it gets a it gets a bad rap, I think. But uh, but I found it a pretty pretty warm and welcoming uh, and cool place. So we spent a lot of time there, fights and not fights, and just any reason I could have. Uh, I had some of the best meals of my
0: life <laughs> in, uh, in chilling in West Berlin. It's a very violent movie. I I am not a UFC fan. I went to one UFC fight in Vegas and. The guy broke his toe in the first round and the bone was outside of the skin. And he proceeded to fight all five rounds and won the fight. And Jesus. it was just disgusting. I didn't like it, and I'm not a—I don't I'm, watch surgery on television for that for
1: that exact reason. I don't. I'm usually pretty squeamish about those things. Um, well, this is UFC times ten in a way. Yeah, fewer rules, really. Yeah. There were no rounds at all. They would just go at it. I mean, there's no groin strikes or hair pulling. I, I do seem to recall they would have an ambulance there. Is that true? There was a, a, a dude who would occasionally attend the fights who was a medic. Who was, who, so it wasn't like he was sort of there. He wasn't there officially. You're on the clock, but he was there as a viewer and he would help out if necessary.
0: But if someone's head got cracked, they had to go like wait in line at the ER. It wasn't Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, oh, so brutal. Yeah, all to make on
1: a good day if the if the if you know, if the gate was popping, maybe they'd make $300, 400 maybe on a on a huge day. So and I this is this really was our first kind of it's like like thunderdome or something it, this was like when we we're i was talking earlier about the the disparity the income disparity in this town and the idea that like 20 miles southwest of south beach which is all anybody ever <laughs> sees on television they think there's one hotel it's the colony on ocean drive mm-hmm. you, you know anybody who's ever stayed there i don't but like the point is that like people think that miami is 10 blocks of ocean drive between 5th and 15th um but then there's actually Miami. And uh, not maybe not your Miami, but Miami, which is the rest of this sprawling county where sixty percent of the residents can't afford to live in it. And in Parine, where you have a population who is not only underserved but in many cases unserved, you have a population that has been disproportionately criminalized, uh, rightfully or wrongfully, but they have criminal records that uh, reduces access to legitimate employment. Um, you realize that there are people who have different life experiences and perspective than you have because you don't get to pick your parents. You open your eyes one day, you take a look at the world around you. At some point, you learn you you have to take a look at the color of your skin too to understand where you fall in this world. And you play the hand that you're dealt. Sorry to use a poker mm-hmm. <laughs> metaphor, but um, and so there, the the folks in in West Pine don't always have it very easy, and. Uh, there are people there who think or believe or perhaps know that their best opportunity uh, to feed themselves and their families or to fight in what some people have described as human cockfighting or human dogfighting in a backyard uh, for a few hundred dollars, upload the footage to YouTube in the hopes of maybe getting discovered by a professional trainer, MMA or boxing promoter who may give them an opportunity to go pro. And that's what they think that, you know, the way we think of like grew up with our parents saying, oh, you go to school, you go to, I didn't know that everybody didn't go to college till I was a junior in high school. <laughs> and my senior friend said, I said, oh, where are you, you know, what are you going to, oh, I'm moving to New York. And I'm like, oh, you're going to NYU or no, You're you're going to Fordham? No, you're going to, going to Columbia? No, no, I'm just moving to New York. Well, what? Where are you going to school? I was like, No, I'm not going to school. I'm going to dance. I'm going to audition. I'm going. To, I'm like, oh, you don't have, I thought that like just sure as you go from elementary to middle to high, like you everybody like because that's what my parents, you know, instilled in me. But like you realize that no, this is not everybody's path. This is not everyone's trajectory. We're not all blessed. We don't all have that that privilege. And you know, in Dade County, that's where. It, you know, the world, I went to a Magnus school, I went to New World School of the Arts. And so that fed from everywhere in the county. So I had friends in Pride. So I sort it opened up the the world and opened up my eyes to sort of different experiences and different kinds of people. And you're like, oh shit. For some people, this is the trajectory. Backyard fighting is the is the single greatest opportunity. And in, in that way, dog fight's kind of a tragedy.
0: So you have an interest in the, In the gig economy, which Miami (laughs) is a permanent feature of Miami life, and hustling 101, and tries to bridge the gap in a way that is seemingly unbridgeable in Miami. Yeah. If we had a a bit more time, I I would love to go into Magic City Hustle. Yeah. But I know I'm 15 minutes past our hard stop, so I'll get
1: to your meeting. No, I, I. You know, Magic City Hustle is very much a celebration of the gig economy or the hustle economy and the idea that very few people in Miami, very few people have one job. You know, I'm never working on one project at a time, (laughs) you know, there's, and, and, and you have people who their side hustles got side hustles in Miami Uh, and that's not a way to get rich. That's just a way to survive, just, you know, get to, get to sustenance wages in this in this town, you've got to, you know, because of cost of living and, and, and our lack of infrastructure and public transit, you have to have multiple jobs. And Magic City Hustle kind of, I would say, celebrates that. It doesn't glorify it, but it celebrates that. It's more importantly, it celebrates the people that struggle in that economy and find a way to make ends meet and try to get success for themselves. It For me, it's this kind of spiritual... It's like um, it's like broke meets dogfight with high instead of backyard <laughs> fighting. Um, it's kind of it's one of the most Miami things we've ever done. It's the first documentary we haven't had an original score. We just licensed like thirty five or more songs from local artists, from all local artists, and that became the score to the you know the soundtrack for Magic City Hustle. I think it's a. I think it's it it it's it's a really it's came out the same year as screwball and it's sort of they're certainly city city uh uh, siblings if you will but they're very different kinds of miami miami stories uh but but magic city hustle is very much an example of kind of our thesis of the miami of today being the america of tomorrow and lessons you can you can glean from from that And, and it's you know a lot of former athletes uh you know in there trying to trying to find their way and make a living and maybe even be, you know, get a taste of professional athleticism again, or if some of them never went pro. And so now they're professional highlight players and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun.
0: And, uh, magiccityhustle.com is where to see it. Well, Billy, I appreciate this time so much. This was a lot of fun. I can do this all day. <laughs> this is great. Thank you. Thank you.